0: Welcome back to the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast presented by Pinelands Nursery. I am Fran Chismar.
1: And I'm Tom Kinesic. Welcome to a hun- episode 118. Okay. We're getting there, Fran. We're almost there. Get getting What are we going for? I don't, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't know. Well, I guess this would be almost, uh, no, what would, uh, two years worth of in 104 if you did it every week. Yeah. So. We're, yeah.
0: we're, we're, we're well over. It well was two years that. in February because we, when we started off, it we did a couple months where it was – well, with, with the pandemic, I think we went a whole month without an episode, yeah, and it was every yeah. other week for a while. So,
1: But well, <laughs> anyway, we do have some, uh, some interesting stuff to, to bring to you today, and um, typically we save our little updates and, and that kind of stuff for our buzz episodes, but there's some stuff that I wanted to get out there as soon as possible. Uh, first one is that we have a live show coming up.
0: It's a first. I'm really excited about this, more excited than I thought I would be, but it's going to be a lot of fun being in front of a live audience to do this. Yeah. I, I don't know how it's going to be. It might be a nightmare, yep. <laughs> but I'm kind of excited to just get that immediate feedback.
1: Yeah, so that's going to be on October 1st at 2 p.m. At, uh, at James Braddock Park in North Bergen, New Jersey. Uh, it's actually going to take place in the Nature's Park Cafe which is there, um, so we can eliminate some of the the background noise. <laughs> so. And we'll
0: be able to take live questions. Yeah. So we do have a guest. I guess we could say who our guest is. Our guest will be Dr. Randy Eccle of Toadshade Nursery. And, and Randy has been on the podcast before, but as part of a rooted discussion. So we'll actually have the opportunity to just do some one-on-one time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we'll be able to take live questions,
1: yeah. which – are
0: you ready for that,
1: Tom? Oh, yeah. Uh, sure. I don't know if I'll ever – technically be ready but we're, we're <laughs> gonna make it work <laughs> but, but i don't know well, that's if I, you're in the area make sure you show up um if you're not in the area and you want to take a little journey to, to beautiful north bergen then uh we're, we'll be happy to see you there
0: yeah yeah it'll be pretty pretty awesome please make it if you can and there's a plant sale that day from mm-hmm. from, from 10, 10 to 2, 2 with yeah. a lot of uh native plant nurseries so the one feedback we always get is that there's not enough People selling native plants, there will be plenty of people selling native plants. Sir.
1: And then the second little update is uh, is that we're actually looking to hire somebody. We're looking for an assistant propagator um, to help us out here at the nursery. So I'm going to – it's already on Indeed. It's on our website at pylonsnursery.com. There's a little spot in the menu that says career opportunities. You can find it there. Um, I'm going to put it in the Facebook group too. I, but I, I was a little – I wasn't sure if I should do that on a podcast. I'm like, well, it's our podcast, so yeah. why why wouldn't I do it? If you want to – if you're interested in that kind of stuff and you want to come if, work with if us. If you're
0: interested in that, this is why I feel this is very exciting news. Our propagator, Glenn Rogers, I've worked with Glenn for 25 years, I want to say, not just at at uh, Pineland's Nursery but also at Princeton Nurseries. Not only is Glenn one of the – best native plant propagators in the country glenn's one of the best propagators in the country and a a lot of his peers that i look up to as far as propagators all speak very highly glenn this is someone's opportunity to learn from one of the best yeah um and it's it's a fantastic opportunity so i think uh we've we've already got a a a lot of applications but get Mm -hmm. your application in because this is if you ever wanted to, it's it's almost like an internship, but you're getting paid. You're getting to yep. work with one of the best, and mm-hmm. it's uh, I can't speak highly enough about Glenn, yep. especially after no, I know it's an old joke, but it, literally you could put roots on a rock. So,
1: <laughs> yeah, so yeah, no, it's a it's an exciting opportunity, especially for that position. It's not something that comes around that often, so. Um, you can find the details of what we're looking for, like I said, on our website in the career opportunities section on Indeed, and I'm going to post it in our Native Plants Healthy Planet Facebook group as well. Um, yeah, we're looking forward. We already had a, a bunch of good candidates, but we're really trying to find the best candidate because uh, Glenn is is a, <laughs> a special person. He, he really is. He deserves some good help. So, yeah, um, completely. Yeah. So with that, let's move into today's guest. And this was something that really matriculated really quickly. Um, They're all – that's always the best. Yeah, and friend, <laughs> I'll let you go into the background of how you met our guest today. So
0: I had been invited uh, to be part of a roundtable discussion – was it back in in May?
2: In, in March. In
0: March. I was going to say March. I'm like, was it that long ago? So um, – and what I found fascinating about this was it was an opportunity to not only be part of a discussion with peers but – It wasn't just private businesses. It was government uh, agencies. It was nonprofits. It was a lot of great agencies uh, and and businesses all in the ecological realm, but ones that don't necessarily always communicate together. And And
1: something we talk about a lot, how much these organizations need to work together, and they do work together, but it's not as seamless as it could be. There's always tends to be a lack of communication where – one group is left out of the full story, and uh, and we always said it would be great if someone kind of tackled that issue. And yeah, it made that communication
0: chain one, smoother. One, I was happy just to be part of that conversation, be invited to be part of that conversation. Because when I looked at the list of people, I was like, oh, wow, this is this is an honor. Um, but two, um, like we were saying, it doesn't always happen, and to have conversations this meaningful with people. I, I really felt for for the time that we were a lot. Of, I know there were two separate ones, and I was only involved in one. Um, the amount of good conversations that I felt came out of that, um, and just being able to, you, you know, we, you talk with with people, like having everyone at the table and being able to read, kind of, their feeling behind it, not just. Mm-hmm what was being said but the reasoning for it and be able to state your case and, and hear someone's plea for help or plea for we need to work together just made it a whole different. I, I, I just walked away from that meeting saying this was something special mm-hmm. and I can't wait to see what happens next. So we we did get contacted from our guest um, and we followed up and we, we had a nice meeting on on this past Monday. So – um I, I don't want to go any more into that. I figure let's, let's introduce our guest, and then we can yeah. kind of talk about it from there. So yes. e- go ahead. I'm sorry. I was going to
1: say, Eve, I'm terrible at introductions, and, uh, and you know your background way better than I do. So why don't you tell everyone who you are and, uh, and where you're from and a little bit about your background?
2: Sure. So my name is Eve Allen, and I'm currently a program director at the Ecological Health Network. I recently graduated from MIT in May, and my current work focuses on figuring out how to strengthen native seed and plant material supply chains in the Northeast. But I have a varied background, but I I would say my through line has been the conservation and utilization of Plant diversity for both social and ecological well-being, and that takes that took me to many different places around the world, working on mostly natural resource conservation projects. Um, I was in the high Andes of Peru, working with indigenous farmers to um, create a genetic reserve to help conserve wild potato species. I was in Japan researching. Um, Ume production and how farmers there help proliferate various ecosystem services through traditional agricultural practices. Um, I was in China helping um, an eco-city develop a strategy to incorporate 200 native plant species into their urban planning program. So I've done a lot of things, but plant diversity has been at the center of all of them.
0: So we we did meet th- through you know, part of your master's thesis. So I, I want you to talk about what your thesis entailed. But before you do, I just wanted to ask you if – when you started, when you chose this thesis, at any point did you feel that maybe what you were trying to accomplish may not be able to be accomplished? Like did that ever – like uh, that's got to be – Anyone that's doing a thesis, I would imagine that's got to be a little bit of a, a fear because I I feel that you pulled off something that no one has been able to pull off, <laughs> and which is impressive. And at some point, like, did you ever feel that maybe you wouldn't be able to
2: do it? Absolutely. There were many moments when um, I had a lot of doubt and I was like, am I going to be able to achieve this? Am I going to be able to, you know, teach myself what I need to know, teach myself the software that I need to use to analyze my data. Am I even going to be able to have enough data to analyze? So those fears were, you know, part of the journey, I think, of the any thesis project, um, at least they were part of mine. And I had a lot of anxiety and insomnia, which connects me to my favorite native plant, which we'll talk about at the
0: event. <laughs> awesome.
2: Um, but yeah, of course. But I made it through, and I'm really proud of what I was able to accomplish. And you know, I'm excited about what I'm doing now because it's taking that research, leveraging that research, and putting it into action, which brings up a lot, you know, of new doubts and challenges, but. You just have to move forward. You can't look backwards and do your best to figure it out.
0: So could you explain to our audience what your your thesis was and 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 some of the process you went through to accomplish this?
2: Sure. So first I'd like to say I was at MIT in the Department of Urban Studies and Planning, and I was getting my master's in city planning. And I came to this research thinking that I would, work on studying green infrastructure, ecological restoration, and figuring out how to scale um, these types of projects up so that we could mitigate the worst impacts of climate change, bring biodiversity to our cities. Um, And I started to realize that there were big bottlenecks that needed to be addressed. And one of those was that there was a lack of adequate seed and plant material to support these projects and that broke down in different ways from the lack of just species diversity to the lack of material that had local ecotypes or genotypes that were appropriate for the area or just that there wasn't enough quantity of seed or plant material to go into these projects and so I wanted to investigate this and I wasn't sure how I would do it but through reading other people's research and and just thinking about it, I decided I would carry out a social network analysis. And I would gather information on the wide range of social actors who have stakes in strengthening native seed and plant material supply chains. And then I would analyze the patterns of relationships or linkages that exist among and between those social actors to reveal important insights about how that social network is structured and then how that in turn informs our understanding of how the supply chain is structured. And so what I did was I was like, okay, let me start drawing up a list of all of the government agencies at the federal, state, and local level. And just to let you know, this was in the Northeast. I chose the Northeast region. And I really focused on Boston and Massachusetts, one, because where I was working, the Ecological Health Network, they're located there. MIT is located in Boston. Um, And it was easy for me to, you know, capture information from that local area that I was in. So I looked at government agencies. Um, I looked at nonprofits that are working on land conservation, ecological restoration, environmental justice, native plant education, indigenous land stewardship. I looked at all of the academic institutions that have either departments that are working on restoration or they have field labs. Um, I looked at philanthropic foundations that might be funding these projects. I looked at all the botanic gardens, the arboretum, the herbaria, the nurseries, the seed companies, the citizen advocacy groups, landscape architecture firms, eco-contracting firms. I mean, it was a pretty big list. 158 in total. And so then the next step after compiling that list was I formatted a survey and I sent it to all of those people. And I asked them, can you rate your level of collaboration with every other person in this list? And it was on a scale from, I think, zero to four. So zero was like, I've never collaborated with them, I don't know them. And four was, yeah, we collaborate frequently or regularly we expect to do so in the future. And when I had all of that data, after people responded to my survey, I was able to use an open source software called Gephi, which is a it, it allows you to analyze social networks and it has metrics and algorithms built in. And so I analyzed that to to find who were um, really critical social actors in the network, who occupied central positions because they were able to influence others in the network because they were able to broker or exchange information or who in the network was on the periphery, not well connected. Um, How is the network maybe divided into subgroups? So how do people work together, you know, at a smaller or subgroup level? And so, yeah, that was essentially my thesis research. I also gathered information from semi-structured interviews because doing the social network analysis you kind of get a snapshot of the system and that's great but that qualitative information from all of the interviews helped me to build a more nuanced picture of what's happening and then the round table was like a focus group where I was able to again generate more information that helped me fill in some gaps. That's
0: a daunting task. I was I was actually reflecting On a lot of things, as as you were explaining that, and it kind of why I kind of feel it's daunting is you know any group. It I kind of feel like I related to high school, yeah. (laughs) And there's so many different cliques and groups Mm -hmm. that occur in in that school, and like anything else, you know, everyone's professional, but there's people that care and there's people that don't care. We had the conversation when you were here on Monday about provenance, and to some people that. Is everything, and to some people, mm-hmm. it's nothing. You know, and it depends on what their level of—that's uh, well, what their values. Yeah, mean. yeah.
1: Some some people find it valuable, and well, you look at your own core values. There's things that you're going to align yourself with, and no matter what, you're going to follow those values. And there's some things that you like, but you're willing to throw away in in a moment of yeah. Uh, of controversy or temptation or conflict or something like that. And, so
0: and sometimes it comes down to relationship. And and this was another conversation we had that we have some very long standing relation customer relationships. But when it came to adding a product line like seed to our mix, we they don't even have that conversation with us because they have strong relationships. In, in those so even though we're in a lot of cases we're customers slash friends, we. Their relationships are strong like that with a lot of other mm-hmm. people, and sometimes you just can't, yeah, y- you can't get in there. So it's you're you're dealing with so many different factors of of making or tr- or trying to get everyone to work together for an information flow, and to me that's that's mm-hmm. <laughs> that, that's 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 very daunting. So, so
1: Eve, um, Eve, one of the things that when you're uh, st- talking there, it reminded me of was um, and I don't remember which Malcolm Gladwell book it was. Uh, but I think it might've been outliers when he talks about the different types of people and how you have these connectors. And I don't even know if that's the term exactly used, but for everyone at home, just think about all your friend circle, like your closest friends and think about why you're friends with them. Is it something yeah. where the two of you met or is it something where, well, I'm friends. Well, I'm friends with Saul the our, our <laughs> listener because of Fran. I, yeah. I don't, I didn't meet Saul. I'm friends because I know Fran. And then when you do that, you, tend to find out a lot of your friends are because of one person in particular or a handful of people in particular and they're not your friends they're friends with so-and-so and and you're friends with that person so you hang out a lot um which is kind of sad when you really (laughs) boil it down did you find the same thing happen with a lot of these when you did your study with a hundred and some organizations Mm -hmm. that it was really like a handful of organizations kind of tied them all together
2: yep absolutely and it was Incredibly revealing. Um, So I'll share one example. Mass Audubon was one of the top, most influential actors in the in the network, um, based on their ability to both influence uh, the behavior of other actors in the network, and also because they can broker and exchange knowledge and external resources and foster trust and collaboration. So they are a very central player um, in the realm of ecological restoration, habitat restoration, and um, and maybe in a more indirect way, seed and plant material supply chains, even though they aren't necessarily you know, a native plant nursery and producing, although I know they do from time to time grow their own material, for their projects. But yeah, and then, you know, another thing that we found is that the most tightly um, connected organizations and agencies that are working together are primarily government agencies and nonprofits and private companies. And then uh, nurseries and seed companies and botanic gardens, they occupy more the periphery of the network. And then in the interstitial area is Again, more nonprofits, and we really look at nonprofits as intermediaries, also performing a role of connecting various people in the network.
0: Could could we discuss some of the challenges? Like one of the things that popped into my head as we were talking about relationships and could have been a challenge as well is it, it's funny how sometimes you feel you have as a company that we have a strong relationship with another organization, only to find out it was a strong relationship with one person in that organization and as there's turnover you no longer have that same relationship anymore it's you know and you can look through a timeline and say oh we did you know i had a really good relationship with this organization for four years and then there was turnover and then all of a sudden that kind of dropped off for a couple years and then someone else came aboard like did you even have turnover like in the people that you were dealing with while you were conducting this
2: Um, I don't believe that I experienced that, but that was one factor that was a limitation that I wrote about um, because, you know, I was sending out the survey to executive directors or heads of different departments in these uh, organizations or agencies, and I was asking that individual to rate the level of collaboration. So that ultimately was a subjective choice that they were making based on their own, you know, experience and knowledge. And, you know, through some email correspondence, some people said, well, we're going to look at records so that we can give you a more objective answer. And so I know that some of that happened. But yeah, that is one limitation that there are there is turnover in, in different companies and agencies, and that needs to be uh, taken account of it. But that is why the semi-structured interviews were really helpful, because I was able to talk to a lot of people and and through conversation, learn a little bit more about how these relationships, um, like what are the quality of the, the relationships that exist between agencies and how our resources um, and expertise um, and capabilities shared among different actors. So
0: now, if, if I remember correctly, you said you started your thesis prior to COVID starting?
2: Well, or right I, around, right around. Yeah, I took a year off. I started in um, fall of 2019 mm-hmm. at MIT in my master's program. And then um, 2020, obviously, was when we were hit with the pandemic. So I took a year off. And in that year off, I found the Ecological Health Network, and I started interning with them, and that's when I began some of this research. Um, how, how do you think COVID affected
0: your your thesis? Do you, do you think you were able to get better information based on COVID or, or different information? Do you think it affected the outcome overall?
2: I wouldn't say it affected the outcome, not that I would I – don't, I don't know, but I think there was a benefit of the fact that people were already primed to be on Zoom and really willing to get on a Zoom call with me. And so I was able to talk to people all the time. And we were like, okay, let's set up a Zoom. And it allowed me to hold interviews with a wide range of people pretty easily. So I think it benefited me in that way.
0: All right, I'm going to throw a question at Tom real fast. I didn't share this with you on purpose, so Eve shared with me as we were touring the nursery uh, one, of, one of the people that she felt was one of the most influential people that she spoke to, mm-hmm. and it's a prior guest.
1: And it wasn't you? No. It was- no,
0: not even close. <laughs> not even oh, in that gosh. conversation.
2: That's a – If you
0: were to think of one guest that inspires you every There's time, one- but every time you hear them.
1: Uh, well, how often when I heard – Not I heard often, but like – Is it once? Or twice? I don't know. Well, the person that instantly comes to mind is, is Stanley Temple, well, Doctor Stanley no, Temple, and I'm like, oh, I don't. That was kind of weird. Oh, but you were they, supposed they, to guess it. Okay,
0: I, it, Dwayne Estes. Oh Prairie yeah, Prairie. oh yeah,
1: that's a good one. <laughs> yeah, it's it, it really the reason we have a podcast that is you can trace back to him. So yeah. yeah.
0: So how did how did you hook up with, with Doctor Estes?
2: Yeah. So. It was summer of 2021, and after being trapped in my apartment for the duration of the pandemic up until that point, uh, my partner and I, we bought a van and we remodeled it to live inside of it, and we traveled throughout 27 states in seven weeks. And the idea was to go to various uh, restoration sites and learn more about seed and plant material supply chains elsewhere. And so I got to visit Duane in Tennessee, and we went to some amazing remnant prairies and also some amazing restoration sites and learn more about the Southeastern Grasslands Initiative and all the fantastic work that he's up to. Um, and yeah, it was a complete pleasure to meet him. He's so passionate, and his passion is absolutely contagious.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Right. Well, I didn't know about this van idea, so I'm going completely off topic unless you have a question real quick, Tom.
1: No, well, I was add that I I want to do that so bad. And I, like, I would like to do that also. Start driving. And, yeah. So yeah. I I guess
0: <laughs> So now this is where I turn into a little kid. Um so I find this completely fascinating and I, I wanna know and you know, and after this I wanna go into you defending your thesis, but um Twenty-seven states. What were what were the things that stood out upon your visits doing this? Is there, and I'm assuming your partner isn't in this field, so were they coming, kind of coming into it from a different view?
2: Yeah. So my partner, he's a chef, and okay. um, he was studying food. So we we helped each other. Um, okay. You know, we would go to restaurants and and learn about regional dishes, and then. You know, after that, we then go to places like we were in Louisiana eating the best food, and then we went and saw, for example, the longest contiguous um, storm storm barrier. I forget the exact okay. word. You know, the very long Army Corps of Engineer um, barrier that they put up, and we learned about how, in front of that barrier, they're actually restoring. I think four to six hundred acres of wetlands. Mm-hmm. Um, that wetland is actually the first line of defense that protects the storm barrier that then protects the city of New Orleans. So um, I got to learn about their native plant material program and um, that, that was incredible. And then visiting Dwayne in Tennessee and learning about how the Southeast of the United States is, I think it's the world's 36th biodiversity hotspot, wow. which before going there, I didn't even know that um, mm-hmm. You know, they are, their grasslands, which have been completely eradicated, are more biodiverse than the Midwestern prairies. Mm -hmm. Um, So that was, that blew my mind. And then I was in California visiting the kelp forest. um, and, And, you know, the kelp forests are amazing because they species but you know they've been decimated in the past 10 to 20 years and so there's a lot of efforts going on to restore them there and so the idea was really to think about well to learn more about different ecosystem types and the services they provide to people and then how people are going about restoring them and then what type of material um, needs to be produced to restore those ecosystems and it was great for me, because, again, I was cooped up for so long and, the, you know, being in the van, I was still able to be safe with COVID, but I was able to also, you know, go all around. So we had a great time.
0: That sounds like yeah. it would be my new favorite TV show. <laughs> Doesn't it? Like it combines like two of my favorite things, food yeah. and <laughs> and ecological restoration. Like I
1: would want – can we make that a show? Well, it might just be you and I watching, friend. I don't. Oh, I, uh, I don't bet know no. Be there's hit. no way. I, I bet you it would be a big hit. That
0: sure. <laughs> I, I was like, I wish you would have made that a podcast yeah. or a show.
1: Yeah. Now, or a, well, how did or a you TikTok get series? linked up with the uh, the folks that you went to go visit?
2: So I just reached out. I said, you know, I'm a student. I work for the Ecological Health Network. I would love to know more about what you're doing and. Come down and interview you, and honestly, I get great responses from people, they're very receptive to meet with me. Um, I went to Native American Seed in Junction, Texas, which Mm -hmm. is a very big uh production company, if you're familiar with them, and I got to see their entire operation. And um, and they were you know, people are really open. Um, and so I've been so fortunate to to really meet so many amazing people. That's
0: part of part of what i love about this industry is that you really you know from other industries and other people i've talked to and what i've been on in the periphery it's it's just i don't know it's it's a very open mm-hmm. <laughs> cuz it's a lot of family run businesses yeah. and a lot of people treat you as family and coming are into and they're doing it. some
1: really cool stuff and want to yeah. show it off and they're like, doing, it's it's and they're doing it It's cool it's beneficial
0: the, yeah and they're doing it for the love of it mm-hmm. so it's just kind of all these great things that factor in uh yeah, I'm, I'm laughing to myself because I, I, one time I said to your dad, um, we were talking about working for a family business. I'm like, you know, the great thing is that you get tr- working for a family business is you get treated like family. But the worst thing is sometimes you get treated like family. <laughs> but that's all part of the, the, the fun mm-hmm. dynamics of it. But sorry, that just made me chuckle. Um, so how long were you on the road doing that? How long did you, you make that travel?
2: Yeah, so it was just seven weeks. Um, It was throughout the summer, the early part of the summer of twenty twenty one, so last summer. And then I was actually carrying out my thesis research as well while I was on the road. So I was bugging people to complete my survey. And um, sorry if anybody's listening and I bugged (laughs) you, but (laughs) I got a really high turnout rate. And um, I was also holding interviews, you know, with my mobile hotspot and Zooming in the van and. That was cool that I was able to do that, and so then I came back and went into my last year of grad school um, at MIT, and then I was like, "All right, it's time to write this thesis," and and that's what I did.
0: All right, so I think I when we had the roundtable that was before you defended your thesis uh, back yeah. in March. So how did how did that process go for you?
2: So it went well. I'm actually. Um, going to hold at some point when my manuscripts from the thesis are submitted for publication and accepted a public defense. Um, So I just had an internal private defense with my advisor, but it went well. Um, You know, the outcome of the thesis was um, a a conceptual model of the supply chain. Um, And then for kind of the practical application of the research it helped me to reveal existing resources expertise and co- capabilities that are embedded in the social network that could be leveraged to strengthen supply chain processes it helped me identify stakeholders that occupy critical positions it helped me to also think more about the interplay between linear and nonlinear flows in the supply chain and how to capture that more effectively. Um, So I think everything I learned from the thesis has provided a very good foundation for me to move into what I'm doing now. And it's now Taking that research and putting it into action, and trying to shorten the gap between theory and practice.
0: I love that you get to take this and put it into practice, uh, going from your your master's program to your your job. So, for our, for our listeners that don't know, could you tell us a little bit about the Ecological Health Network uh, and the work that they do?
2: yes so they are a nonprofit organization working at the intersection of ecological restoration and human health and they're based in Boston but they work all over the world in different regions and they're primarily focused on connecting long-term ecological restoration projects and programs so that they can learn from one another share their scientific efforts identify key, knowledge gaps, and increase the awareness of the benefits of ecological restoration among the public and policymakers. And what they're really trying to do is assist restoration projects so that they can advance a paradigm shift that supports the recognition globally that ecological degradation is connected to many public health problems and that we cannot solve these public health problems without advancing ecological restoration. So they are a great organization and if you would love to know more about us, please visit at www.ecohealthglobal.org.
0: Awesome, you know, and it's this is something that I kind of feel that many of the conversations we have on the podcast kind of lead towards these. I was thinking mm-hmm. immediately uh, the Pennsylvania Horticultural Society, uh, and we just had kind of thrown out. They were talking about vacant lots that they have made in the gardens, and we we threw out had they done any research to find out how that affected the community? And they're like, oh, wh- I'm trying to what was it like? I'm, I'm trying to remember the stats. Other than crime decreasing twenty five percent. It was psychologically a, a better disposition, or, or yeah, something I know. like. I, I don't. It remember it was like the exact sixty percent, or, or something like that.
1: A, from what they did, but I know in in other areas they found yeah, just like having a window that sees the outdoors improves uh, mental health, um, and well, even just for classrooms, you're going to learn more. And if you have a hospital and you have a window viewing outside, you're going to fuel faster. You bring a plant inside, oh, and all that stuff. Skyrockets even higher. So yeah, there's so many benefits to that. Yeah, I want to.
0: I th- I think the percentage was they found mental health increased by sixty percent any time a vacant lot uh, for anyone that lived near the vacant lot that was made to a garden. Mm-hmm. So it 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 goes without saying to me that those things are connected. You know, I think a mm-hmm. lot of people even found that out during COVID. Uh, being you know natural spaces were the only places that you could go and feel safe and Mm -hmm. finding that connectivity that had been lost over the years. Um, I I know it affected me, and I know Tom and I Mm -hmm. had that conversation. Um, Mm -hmm. So how how does your thesis work help translate to what you do directly for the EHN?
2: Yep. so what we're doing now is we're bringing all of those stakeholders together, not 158 of them, but many of the ones that have expressed their interest in collaborating or we've identified that they're you know, really critical to the network and we want them to be engaged, so we're reaching out and we're building this coalition. And one of the first parts of this is just bringing people together to initiate a conversation, which you saw in the roundtable how productive that can be. Completely. Because one of the beautiful things about taking a network approach is that when you start to integrate all of these diverse perspectives – you can generate very innovative solutions. So that's the first step is to bring everybody together. And then the second step is to work on developing a framework for sustained engagement. Um, We'd like to put together a regional strategy to strengthen supply chains in the Northeast and create some type of framework that allows people to contribute and align their various objectives and work on prioritizing those associated tasks. And um, yeah, so we're we're currently working on this. If you're listening and you want to know more, please email me because I would love to talk to you about how you can get involved. And um, I'm sure you'll put my email we, credit.
0: we will, but if you want to throw it out right now as well, go ahead.
2: It's Eve at ehnglobal.org.
0: And we're going to put all this in the show notes too. Mm-hmm. So we'll we'll put contact for you, all the websites and all that. Um,
1: so uh, go I ahead, would Tom. just take a step back and ask, where did you find the biggest challenges in communication were? Like you, you mentioned, that nurseries tend to be on the periphery, um, which I would agree with. Yeah from our perspective, and you had these connectors who were kind of driving these conversations. Um, where did you find the biggest, like, uh, I guess, well, challenges is not the word I want to use, but it's the word I'm going to use. Uh, where did you find the, the biggest hit like, points breaker, in, yeah. in communication?
2: Yeah, so I noticed that environmental justice groups and Tribal groups and nonprofits that are working on indigenous land stewardship are disconnected from the, the organizations that make up the core. Um, additionally, public health departments, which I also included in that big master list I was talking about, that they were not well integrated into the network. So that's one key feature of the work that I'm doing now is thinking about how I can um foster those connections and and work to strengthen those network connections with those groups
0: what is the next step what would be for you to say all right job well done you know like wipe your hands and say all right we did it what what is your overall i don't want to say end game that doesn't sound right but what is your your overall goal and and what what is your next steps in getting towards this goal
2: Yeah, well, I would say that networks are emergent, so I think right now we're in this process of bringing people together to identify what are the next steps that we need to take, and it will really be a collaborative approach of identifying the the gaps, we've already identified some of the gaps that exist. Like for example, developing target and priority species lists that allow both producers and end users to narrow in on a subset of species that they should work to make sure that the supply chain has enough of those, you know, seeds and plant material of those species. Um, So we know that that's a next step. How do we actually operationalize those target and priority species lists to be generated well that's when we can bring all of these people together with their experiences from various parts of the supply chain to generate the answers so i don't know if this is necessarily answering your question but i'm i think talking a little bit more about the process that i hope
0: happen in the future and that process is missing right now mm-hmm. like it's it's lacking like you obviously identified something that doesn't exist in a lot of ways or is there, or if there is there's a lot of holes in in those dams but okay. i kind of equated it to like after after you left on monday the whole idea of it made me smile because i kind of felt like it was like a james bond super group uh think <laughs> tank uh getting some of the the better minds together to work out some of these problems where everyone's kind of working on the problems just not jointly or together um and to have the opportunity to work with some of these wonderful people and try to solve some of these problems that benefit everyone um you know because when you when you have the right people and and we had this discussion as well it's you know for us um when we look at everything there's a lot of factors in being a, a business and you want to take care of your employees um You want to be able to make sure everyone has a a job and and makes a good living. But at the end of the day, one of our main goals is making sure that every project we're a part of is successful because that's who we are as people and that's how we care. And that's, if if you manage to do that, everything else falls into place. But in order to make this work, you have to have like-minded people that are all on that same page. So I would imagine that's, was that challenging getting the right people or identifying the right people?
2: Well, it's still something I'm working on, um, but I have been incredibly pleased by the level of engagement that I've already been able to, you know, have from all these various people I've been talking to. People have I think realize that this needs to happen for a long time that people need to be brought together and think a bit more comprehensively about a strategy to align interests and uh, create mutual goals and to figure out a strategy to work towards those goals so i think people realize that there's this gap that needs to be filled and i would also say you know, we're in this what I think of as a renaissance um, in the Northeast. There are so many amazing projects that are taking place. I mean, we are we are planting urban forests. We are restoring miles and miles of coastline. I mean, you know, you guys provide seed and plant material to all of these incredible projects. I mean, it's a wide range. We're rehabilitating brownfield sites. Um, we're making the health of our watersheds. Um, We're improving the health of our watersheds. So there's a lot that's going on, and um, people realize that this accelerating demand or the acceleration, rather, in all of these projects is increasing the demand for native seed and plant material that has local ecotypes or local genotypes and will do well. Um, with climate change so I think that I will definitely experience some challenges and that you experience challenges in anything yeah so far I've been so pleased by the momentum that we've been
0: we uh, the the amount of awareness right now is at an all time high uh, at least in my opinion as far as the damages as people that we've done to this earth, and what steps can be taken to to kind of fix these. And there's a lot of fantastic groups doing a lot of great work. I, I, I even thought it was interesting. Tom and I were approached uh, by um, a colleague in the Midwest at one point that said, "Why don't we have a, a native plant? Um, like what? Not a like a organization. Mm-hmm. Like why aren't we all working together? Like why is it?" we're all selling to the same customers. We're all doing the same thing. Why aren't we working together? And because we all realize in order to meet the demand, there needs to be more of us as well. It can't be done with just what, I I mean, you were saying like the lack of correct provenance seed and and plant material is, is an issue now. Um, And that demand is just going to keep growing and growing and growing. So um, I think this is almost hitting it perfect time. Uh, It's a, At the right stage where I think everyone is in the right uh, mind frame to do it and at a stage where it can make a, a tremendous impact before other things happen where maybe you have to break it apart and go forward, you just get to go forward. I don't know if you feel that way or you feel that way, Tom. Were you even listening uh, to him?
1: I kind of I kind of <laughs> zoned out a little bit because you said – I have a good reason. You said the, about the, the guy from the Midwest yeah. who talked about setting up the uh, – like an association with native plant yeah. growers. I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm supposed to do some more research on that. So a lot of times when, when we're having the podcast, I'll pull up little tabs here yeah. for things when that we're we can talking test. about it. Yeah. So I can, and I was like, oh, well, let me pull up the tabs so I remember Sorry, to do I didn't that. mean to, I was just joking.
0: I didn't mean to put you on the spot. But no, it's an exciting time. I I feel more so than any other time yeah. for me, in this, for it, at least in my time in this industry, that we're hitting a, a whole different level of awareness, which I think is yeah exciting. oh yeah for sure. I do agree with that part, and I remember that part from the beginning of your your. <laughs> I just ramble, too. you know. Listen, <laughs> I can't expect and anyone to listen to me
1: for well, the amount of time. But I, I did talk. find out from the the page I found set up an association is nearly half of all nonprofits are set up to fail. So I got a lot of reading to do to make sure this works.
0: <laughs> um, have you seen for what you've been able to accomplish so far, are you already seeing positive results with the wheels in motion or you already seeing good things happening?
2: Yes, absolutely. I think – you know, I'm, I'm new at this. As I mentioned, I just graduated in May and now it's August. And one thing that I have been actually working on since graduation is studying other precedent models that exist in other regions of the United States. Um, other native plant material programs like the Institute for Applied Ecology, they Coordinate various um, plant material programs in the Southwest and the Northwest, and I talked to the director of the Iowa Tallgrass Prairie Center. Um, I'm not sure she works at the Tallgrass Prairie Center, but she directs the native plant material program. So I was able to learn a little bit about what makes those models work and how we might apply some of those lessons to the Northeast. But the Northeast is unique. We are one of the most urbanized regions in the United States. I mean, in the corridor from Washington, D.C. to Boston, 56 million people live there. Um, so that's different than other places. But I think, you know, I think people realize that what we're trying to do is too big of a job for any one entity to tackle on their own. And so by a job- This network approach and by contributing to the network, we can start to unlock and leverage all of our collective resources and expertise and also by taking a regional approach, we can um, we can prevent an uncoordinated patchwork of efforts and we can also reduce either the real or perceived competition for resources. And we also have shared environmental goals across the region because climate change impacts and restoration objectives they extend beyond political boundaries. So there is this need for an interstate collaboration.
0: You know, one of the things I, I find really heartwarming about it is that just getting to deal with people, I, we find our best relationships are people that you kind of get to break bread with and and you want to deal with people that you trust and the only way you get to do that sometimes is is getting to have these conversations spend some face time with them or or have some of these philosophical conversations about it and that's kind of where that working relationship comes out of um so you kind of have to have one to have the other it's just a matter of when and how that occurs i think this kind of facilitates it in a way that like i said that that roundtable meeting, I walked away feeling really good, and had a, I felt there were a lot of really good conversations that happened, and I I, I was kind of sad that there was only one. <laughs> like I wanted I wanted it to continue. I I almost wanted to hear, oh, we can do this once a month and have mm-hmm. these conversations. Like so, I, it's nice to see that this is continuing on, and it's still at its infancy stage. Uh, and and intrigued about the possibilities of of being involved in it as it progresses so tom before we change the subject you you have questions
1: i did but then you said that (laughs) that beautiful little piece and i completely forgot my i am not on my a game i I apologize
0: no problem the um i i i feel like we can't have you as a guest and not talk about you know looking at and you mentioned earlier some of the The interesting positions you've had have led you all around the world, um, and you've got to work with some really unique things. And I would love if we could go into detail maybe a little bit about some of the places uh, around the world that you've worked and the research that you've done and how those things maybe play a part in what you do today.
2: Sure, yeah. So I would say that my interdisciplinary research, um, it's really been the catalyst for me to have the opportunity to live and work in various places across the world. And it has also helped me to develop a global perspective. And it really changed the way that I see the world. I was offered a very small glimpse of how intricately connected humanity is to itself and the rest of the biosphere. And I also witnessed firsthand how human agency can positively shape The ecosystems that people live within. Um, I think one of the most formative experiences that I had was after my undergraduate, I received a Fulbright grant and I was um, able to live and work with indigenous Quechua communities in the southern Peruvian Andes for nine months. And what I was doing there was collecting baseline data to understand how to better protect and conserve wild potato populations um, in the territories that these um, indigenous farmers lived within. And um, that really changed my worldview um, because I, again, witnessed firsthand how you can make a really positive impact on biodiversity and you can proliferate ecosystem services and ensure that you have food security and water security. Um, and, um, I think also the way that the worldview is there, that there is a reciprocity that needs to be maintained between humans and the earth. I mean, they they, they worship Pachamama, Mother Earth, and the mountains, which they call the Apu's, and the wild potatoes are also incredibly venerated in their society as almost like um, old relatives, like old, they call mm. wild potatoes, papa," which means old grandfather potato. Mm. Um, so yeah, that was something that I always look fondly. I always remember fondly my time there.
0: And you worked in Italy as well?
2: Yes, I was working with um, Biodiversity International in Rome, Italy, for my undergrad thesis. I also worked with the Southern African Development Community, and I was working on helping to prioritize crop wild relative species for in-situ conservation in 15 countries in Southern Africa. Um, and so just for people that might not know, crop wild relatives are plant species that can grow without human assistance, but share some degree of genetic relationship to cultivated species. And because they have lots of traits due to adaptation to local environments, and they haven't went through the bottleneck of domestication or high-yielding variety production, they contain lots of genetic diversity that plant breeders and farmers can use to adapt current crops to, um, you know, droughts and heat and disease mm-hmm. and pests. Um, so I was working on conservation of crops like wild watermelon, millet, sorghum, coffee, and um, yeah, that was also wonderful.
1: That's, yeah, that's really fascinating. Just, I, I'm even going back to your work in Peru. And um, I guess these indigenous farmers, they were, I guess, farming the wild potatoes for consumption for their family and their their village?
2: Well, so they were farming domesticated potatoes. Okay. And they actually, it's the place that I was working was called the Parque de la Papa, and it's about 40 kilometers outside of Cusco. And they grow 1,300 different varieties, heirloom varieties wow. of potatoes. Yes, I ate so many potatoes. When- <laughs> Breakfast, lunch, dinner, and snacks, it was potatoes, but it was so many. I mean, purple, pink, yellow, orange, white, brown potatoes, different shapes, different flavors, textures. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it's so hard for me to comprehend the diversity of potatoes that I was able to experience there. And then, because it's a center of origin and diversification for the potato wild potato species grow nearby mm-hmm. and the idea was that well these wild potato species they grow like weeds almost around the margins of the yeah. domesticated potato fields and because potatoes are outcrossing species, there might be some gene flow happening that contributes mm-hmm. to the evolution of the domesticated potatoes and that the indigenous farmers they like I wanted to know do they do they under, like do they recognize that these potatoes that gene flow might be happening or what about their traditional practices helps to maintain these wild potato populations um and so i carried out a lot of ethnobotanical research and i got to interview elders about um about these wild potatoes and i found out like they again they have this worldview that these are a really sacred plant so even though they are wild they will move over the dung of the alpaca and the llama to fertilize mm. the wild potatoes because they recognize that those potatoes act as a protector to their domesticated potatoes. Yeah.
0: I, I don't know about you, Tom, but I feel lazy.
1: That like, you only yeah. eat <laughs> golds and, and some russets? I just mean in general. Like, yeah. I'm,
0: I'm, I'm like yeah. – I'm now contemplating my whole career going, what have I done? Mm-hmm. Of course I had to make it about me, yeah. but – I just feel lazy. You've accomplished so much, and it's so inspiring uh, what you've done and where you're heading with it. Um, it's And and you can't help but to think that the work that you're doing is going to change this industry for the better as we move forward. Um, one question before we move away from that. Having worked in these different places and seeing these different cultures, we tend to think of of the environment as our own little – Piece of property, or our state, or our county, and we we ten- or our country, and not really look past that. Do you do you feel that some of these cultures have a different view as far as um, the health of our environment from a, a world standpoint, or is there any one place that you felt was really progressive in in their practices uh, more so than than we are?
2: That's a good question, and I'm you know I need to probably reflect on that a bit longer because there are good things and bad things about every place that i've traveled and you know worldwide there's so much ecological degradation and while indigenous people i think primarily primarily are the custodians of biodiversity and we can learn a lot from those groups because they've had reciprocal and harmonious more harmonious relationships with their surroundings than Western industrial industrialized nation, so I think we have a lot of learning to do, um, but you know, I I probably have to think a little bit more about that.
0: Okay, all right, no problem. Well, let's let's move it more towards one of the things you mentioned to me that I found of great interest when we were talking was your blog, your personal blog. Can you uh, tell us all about that? Maybe share that address with everyone, also.
2: Yeah. So I, you know. I heard this great quote once I was actually reading Eric Sanderson's book, Manahata, and he described, um, which is a fantastic book. If you haven't read it, it's about the original ecology of the, of New York city. And he made this comment like, um, you know, this was a hobby for me to escape my reality, but then the hobby became my reality. And so I kind of think of my blog like that, not that I want to escape my reality, but it's just something that is a passion project that I love to do and that I hope that it will grow and allow me to continue doing it more. And so what it is, is a platform for me to explore positive reciprocity between people, plants, and ecosystems and develop stories by weaving my experiences on the ground with scientific research and you know i carry out field work in places like urban forests and ancient tea gardens about it and i take pictures and videos and just try to um put together compelling stories that are interesting for people and so if you want to check it out cultivate the wild.com
0: awesome Awesome. So Mm -hmm. speaking of inspirations, um, what is, is there any one person or any one thing that, that inspires you to do the work that you do?
2: I mean, I think that for me, I, I just love biodiversity. Like I, it's the most, you know, essential feature of our planet and it provides us everything that we need and not only does it like provide the basic necessities for life but it's also an ameliorant it makes life worth living like the ability to have coffee and tea in the morning and to wear clothes that have beautiful dyes and to smell perfumes and um I don't know for me it's all about biodiversity so that is what Gets me up in the morning and makes me go is to think about how we can continue to conserve and utilize our biodiversity.
0: That is awesome. Tom, before we ask our last
1: question, oh, I have a a bunch. It's kind of like a little rapid fire questions from some of the things you said throughout the entire conversation. But you you mentioned you went on that trip where you visited 27 states and saw all these restoration projects. A lot of the questions I have are centered around that. And it was, what was the, the coolest or most impressive restoration project you went to across the entire country
2: that's a good question i think honestly it was when i was with Dwayne and we were at one of his uh prairie restoration sites and it was in a suburban area and we were there and he was explaining to me how it was like i think four or five years since they started and They were just now getting some plants to come in, and one of those plants was Rattlesnake Master. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, to me, that was just awesome that we were in a suburban area, we were in a prairie that was being restored, and that these wonderful plants were coming back. Um, and it took some time, but you know, people were actively working to heal this little piece of land. And Dwayne explained to me, like, it wasn't just him and his. But it was like a whole network of volunteers that were coming there to do the work. So I was super impressed by that.
0: You know, it's one of our one of our listeners uh, works with uh, Dr. Estes. And I know one of his favorite, favorite things is to say, tick, you know, when they start talking about these things, it's tick tock. Like, hey, there's an ur- like he works with such a sense of urgency mm-hmm. uh, because that's how important this is to him, uh, and that's where the passion comes from. You, yep. can't, you can't listen to him and not be moved
1: by what he's saying. I think it's impossible mm-hmm. unless you're heartless. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. Okay, another, another question about your trip was you mentioned that you visited a lot of restaurants too. What was the best food you had on the trip? Oh, yeah, I like that question.
2: Well, me and my partner will probably disagree, but and I have to <laughs> what he really liked, but my favorite was this restaurant in New Orleans called Dookie Chase, mm. Dookie Chase's, and it just had amazing Creole food, and I also, one of my favorite foods is okra, so mm. their food okra was just off the charts, so that's a meal I could go back and eat over and over and over again.
0: Okra is something that my neighbor from Kentucky turned me on to because that was a staple in his vegetable garden, and he was like, he he was at the time he's like, have you ever had okra? I'm like, no. He says, like, don't eat it until I make it for you. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I've I've had yeah. bad okra before, and that's I don't what know his if I've concern ever had it very was. Very good, but yeah, I think most of the time you have it, it's not great.
0: To me, it's an acquired taste. Yeah, I, I think it's once you've had it and you've had it done right, like I don't know.
1: Yeah, now All I have right. a fondness because of that. Another another question about your trip. What was the coolest state that you saw?
2: Oh, my. Um,
0: this is like the lightning round. Yeah. I like this.
2: Yeah. Um, I really loved Utah. I didn't see any mm. restoration sites in Utah, but I did go to Zion National Park, and I thought that that was fantastic. It was just absolutely gorgeous, and I would love to go back to Utah. I'd go back in a heartbeat. Yeah.
1: Awesome. Yeah. And then the the last one I had that just from a little quick jot was when you were in Peru, what was the best potato you had?
2: You know, that is a funny question because I would always ask the farmers, okay, you have thirteen <laughs> yeah. varieties of potato, which is the best? And yeah. they said to me, What if you had five children? And I asked you to tell me which was your best children? You wouldn't be a child? Yeah. You wouldn't be able to do it.
1: Um, friend, you I only have one, so I can't answer that question. Friend, <laughs> you have two, so can you? Are, you're no, able to, no, I can't. I've, answer that I've question. heard you talk about your kids, friend. <laughs> I know. That you,
0: I don't have a favorite. <laughs> no, it, I, it depends yeah. on the day. How about that? <laughs> you know, yeah. it's um, one of the things I appreciate about speaking of my children. My oldest son is whenever we go somewhere that we've never been before, and he orders, he always asks whoever is waiting on us um what like if it's a drink or if it's a uh, something to eat what's your favorite thing on the menu and that's what he orders every time mm-hmm. and, and a lot of times sometimes it's things that aren't on the menu they're like oh maybe you should try this or maybe you should try that and he always has most of the time has a great experience with it yeah you know and that's what he bases he's like if I'm going somewhere I'm asking someone who knows the food what their favorite is that mm-hmm. should be the best I'm like, well, it's personal taste too. Yeah,
1: that's where I would I would fall into that. But I didn't, Eve. I think I cut you off when you were about to reveal your favorite potato. Did you, you, <laughs> did you have an answer? I,
2: I don't have a answer with a favorite potato because I think aesthetically I like purple and pink potatoes most. I mm-hmm. I think they're very beautiful and I like to eat them. Um, also, the potatoes in Peru—they have a different protein content. They're more high in protein, mm-hmm. and they're not as fluffy as our potatoes here are in the United States. Um, so, you know, sometimes I think I just like like a normal red skin potato, but it's it's so hard. I've tried so many potatoes, and they have honestly like some taste like peanuts, some taste yeah. like corn, some taste more on the sweeter side i mean and then there's different preparations i'll tell you what i really enjoyed in Peru. there was a a practice that they would do during the potato harvesting where they would make these ovens out of the the big pieces of soil that they would break apart when they were harvesting the potatoes and so they if you think about like an igloo so mm-hmm. think about yeah. it so this Oven was basically like an igloo made out of the soil, the clods of dirt or soil, and they would kind of build it all up, and then they put a bunch of sticks and, you know, create fire in there, and then they'd throw the potatoes in and smash down the earth and just let that sit for a while and so you have these earth-baked potatoes, and Mm. they were absolutely delicious. Yeah. That's
0: all right. I know this is off topic because everything I talk about is off topic. But uh, So my wife uh, is from Poland, and her dad was sharing that the best egg he ever had was when they would put the cows out to pasture. They would go quite a way, and they would just cover eggs. They would take raw eggs with them from that morning. They would, they would collect them, and then they would cover them in clay, the clay mm. of the soil, and then just put them in a fire and let them – bake in the fire all day mm-hmm. and he said he's never had an egg that tasted mm. as good as you know cuz he's like I don't know it had something to do with the clay like it's just I don't yeah. know so now I want to yeah now I want to try potatoes it's that way
1: probably better than wrapping them in in aluminum foil <laughs> so.
0: <laughs> probably so yeah. I think the best way to, to end your rapid fire question is our last question which is the simplest yet hardest and that is what is your favorite native plant.
2: Yeah, and you know, I think probably a lot of people say it's hard to choose just one, but I will choose the one that has I think supported me the most this year and that is Passiflora incarnata, otherwise known as pers- purple passion flower.
0: Very very nice. And why is that one your your favorite?
2: Well, I mean, first of all, its blossoms are mesmerizing and I love its perennial, herbaceous, viney growth habitat, uh, uh, habits. It just like takes over. Um, and people have been using this plant since time immemorial to treat lots of different things, including anxiety and insomnia and just to calm the nervous system down. So this plant was a really special one for me.
0: Very, very nice. So and, – and that's the first time that one's ever oh, been yeah. – been uh, said um so at this point in the show we always end with a final thought and we'll let you go first and and this time we kind of just hand the floor over to you and you can use the time however you'd like if you want to promote something if you want to summarize if you want to talk about something we haven't talked about it's you can do whatever you want we hand you the floor and it's all yours
2: yeah i would say final thought is that you know it's really challenging to quantify and comprehend how humans have altered ecosystems. I mean, we globally have dammed like 75% of the world's major rivers. We've eradicated forests in 25 countries and reduced forest cover to 10% in another 29. We've removed, filled, and polluted 85% of the wetlands, and we have replaced hundreds if not thousands of miles of sandy beaches mud flats and mangroves with seawalls and brick walls and wharves and i think too often we attribute our environmental problems to excess carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and this is reflected in our current current climate policy but so equally imperative are strategies to restore and revive our planet's imperiled ecosystems and if we are going to do this successfully. I mean, it's a decade on ecosystem restoration, and there's all of these projects that we really need to make sure that we secure adequate adequate supplies of native plant species as either seeds or nursery materials, because this is what's going to allow us to reestablish biodiverse, self-sustaining plant communities, assemblages, and populations that improve ecosystem functioning, support pollinators and wildlife, improve human health and well-being, and are durable enough to withstand the impacts of climate change.
0: That is a great final thought. I don't want to go now. You want to <laughs> just
1: end it on that? <laughs> Tom, do you want to no, go or do you want really... – Well, friend, I'll give you some time to come up with a final up I have thought, one. Mine, just... is, mine is uh, – we've, we've remarked a lot about how communication isn't great. Um, or we feel like communication isn't great with us in the nursery. Even just this year, there's big, big projects that have been in the works for mul- like multiple years, and we're just hearing about them when they need the plants in a month. And uh, it's always nice to get that communication earlier. Fran, I know that's what you're going to hit on. It is. So I'm is. not. Uh, <laughs> I just want to lay that out and say I am thinking about that too. Um, but when, uh, when Eve was at the nursery the other day, uh, and then again today through this conversation, uh, but after he left, I remarked to Fran, I'm like, you were just such an eloquent speaker. And I think you said like or um once when for the 15, 20 minutes we were we were talking the other day. And uh, my wife's an English teacher, and I'm not good at that. So she always says that. But, and then I was trying to say, oh, well, what kind of accent does she have? And you have one tell, and it's how you said own. You had like that Southeast PA own. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, maybe. <laughs> But yeah, it's really hard. You're you're a very very eloquent speaker. You have a very good cadence and pace, and uh, so that was my final thought. It was very impressive. Yeah, it's just it was very impressive. Yeah.
0: Um, so my final thought is kind of touching on this. You know, it, I I think part of the Renaissance is we're 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 understanding the damage that we've done throughout the years, and once you understand it, you can begin to fix it. And I'm still I'm sure we're still damaging things in a way that we don't even understand yet, but as we pull together just like we preach about if everyone planted a couple native plants we need all these properties and and spaces to have continuity or connectivity we keep talking about connectivity well as as people especially in the ecological restoration community we need that connectivity and and it's nice to see that you're promoting that and and uh gearing towards this um, and I'm looking forward to being a part of that in the future because I think we're going to do our greatest work together as a, as a community, um, and we need each other yeah. for that. So I'm, I'm happy. I feel like this is the ground floor, and I'm just happy to be a part of that. Well, so that,
2: thank you so much for being a part of it.
0: Uh, no problem. No, that's because no one else will have me.
1: So, well that's going to wrap us up for today thank you for joining us we hope you enjoyed listening to eve allen for more information um you can visit her blog which is going to be in the show notes but also visit www.ehnglobal.org Thank you for everyone for listening Native Plants, Healthy Planet, presented by Pineland's Nursery.
0: Uh, thank you to the egocentric plastic men for contributing our theme music uh, for our Meet the Guest episodes. Make sure you stream or buy their music wherever you consume mu- uh, music or see them live. Live music is back. They play a lot in the Manny Young, Philadelphia area. You can follow us on Twitter at Pineland Nursery. You can follow us at on Facebook at Pineland's Nursery NJ, Instagram at Pineland's Nursery or Native Plants underscore Healthy Planet. And uh, of course, also on YouTube at Pinelands Nursery. Don't forget about the question and comment line. Call us at 215 346 6189. I will repeat that 215 346 6189. Ask a question or leave a comment, and we will play it on a future ep- episode of The Buzz. We actually received a call for speaking of Saul. I think it's like Beetlejuice. You mentioned his <laughs> name, and he called in and left a message. So uh, next week's episode, we'll have a uh, some words from Saul um, and the native plants healthy planet Facebook group just I can't I, I am uh, out of all this most proud of that mm-hmm. that community and how it continues to grow
1: and uh, I've made many friendships from that group and I'm very appreciative of that yeah, yeah. so uh, you can listen to native plants healthy planet present or you can listen to Native Plants Healthy Planet presented by Pylons Nursery directly at www.nativeplantshealthyplant.com. But you're probably going to listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, really, wherever you consume your podcasts. Uh, when you're there, if at all possible, leave a five star review, give it a little write up. I'll give you a shout out on our Buzz episodes. That goes a long way into getting uh, more people uh, to listen to our podcast and spread this Native Plant message. So if you like what we we're putting down, uh, give that five-star review, and then even better, you can share it with a friend and say, hey, you might be interested in this episode uh, because I know you, you like the fish, so you might want to listen to the episode with Joe Sommelier. You might be interested in birding, so listen to something with N.J. Audubon or something like that. So always good to refer friends like that. Uh, you can also buy podcast merch at our website, www.nativeplanshealthyplant.com. There's a little banner at the top, take to our spring store, and then uh, basically we have a bunch of different selections. We don't take any of the profits. We, uh, or keep any of the profits, we take those and then donate them to organizations that we feel are doing a really good job um, of, like, boots on the ground, hands in the dirt, and promoting this message as well. So with that, thank you, everyone. I'm Tom.
0: And I am Fran. Uh, Thanks again, everyone. Eve, thank you again for spending uh, time with us today. We appreciate it. Uh, coming up next week, we do have a buzz episode, so make sure you tune in for that because we'll announce the winner to our uh, big contest. Who's going to get the 50 herbaceous plugs? Yep. So is it you? It might be.
1: Well, when in my test runs, just saying, oh, yeah, is this spinning wheel going to work to identify who it would be? I counted who would have won, and it was it was my wife's review. <laughs> <Yeah>. Well, <laughs> so I realize I
0: we won. have both left reviews too, <laughs> yeah. so we have to take that out also. Yeah. So I, it wouldn't be right. fair if, if we won. So… Uh, Make sure you tune in for that. We're going to announce a big winner next week. And until then, keep it native. Thank you for listening to the Native Plants Healthy Planted podcast presented by Pinelands Nursery. Remember to like, share, follow, and comment.